Hi there, and welcome to The Art of Aging, which is part of the Abundant Aging podcast series from United Church Homes. On this show, we look at what it means to age in America and in other places around the world with positive and empowering conversations that challenge, encourage, and inspire everyone everywhere to age with abundance. As part of our Aging Innovation Series, I'm really pleased to have Nicole Cuervo on the podcast today. And Nicole is the founder and CEO of Spring Rose, which is an adaptive innovates company that she founded in honor of her grandmother, whose name is Rose. Spring Rose's purpose is to improve quality of life for women with limited mobility, and they do this by helping women get dressed painlessly and independently. Nicole is originally from Buenos Aires, Argentina, but grew, uh, grew up most of her life in the U.S. Uh, previous to Spring Rose, she worked at Deloitte Consulting on human-centered design, here for human-centered design, and strategy projects with uh, government and nonprofit clients. Again, Nicole, you're a kindred spirit to this show. Uh, you firmly believe in the power of uh, applying empathy to, to design and, and, and how the best solutions are rooted in engaging with those that are impacted by a challenge that you are addressing and co-creating together. So we're going to unpack this on the show today with your solution, Spring Rose. She is also quite smart, graduate of Brown, double master's MBA from the Kellogg School of Management, and an MS from the McCormick School of Engineering at Northwestern University. So definitely a, a, a very accomplished person. Okay. And then for, uh, actually, first of all, welcome, Nicole. Glad to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. I really appreciate it. <laughs> and I just wanted to do a quick plug for um, our Ruth Frost Parker Center. So the Ruth Frost Center, Park, the Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging, is United Church Homes Leadership Arm. Uh, we are uh, committed to addressing and ending ageism, and we host uh, regular education sessions and an annual symposium uh, meant to uh, empower positive views on aging, end ageism, and highlight innovative programs that really do reflect the ideas of abundant aging. Okay, so Nicole, welcome again. I am going to start with a question that I like to ask a lot of guests because, you know, coming off that biography that I read, I mean, you're somebody that clearly could be doing like a lot of things with your talent. And, you know, now your passion, you're really engaging with adaptive apparel. Can you tell us a little bit about how you felt, found yourself in, in this space? Yeah, it's not a very common space to be working in. And thank you for that lovely intro. I grew up wanting to be an entrepreneur. I think I had lemonade stand when I was like eight or nine years old when I first moved to the States. And from there, I always was interested because my mom had been an entrepreneur for a very long time. And when I got to college, I started studying business and entrepreneurship and always trying to think of different ideas. I had some really wild ones that just not feasible at all. But eventually, when my grandmother moved close to us after my grandfather passed away, I got to spend a lot more time with her than I had growing up and noticed during that time that despite her being independent, despite her being very capable, she still struggled to put on her clothing and particularly her adaptive, like not her adaptive, her intimates, which weren't adaptive. So her bra was really challenging, her compression socks. And that to me was very frustrating because your clothing is the first thing you do every day. It's something very basic and it's something that should take at most, you should be like, oh, does this match? And that should be the hardest question to answer and you move on with your day. So finding out that something so uh, common was causing a lot of challenges for her is very frustrating. And the more people I talked to, the more I realized this was a really big issue. And I'd always wanted to also do something that helped people. So this felt 
kind of like it aligned with my interests, but also both personally and professionally. And yeah, it's talking to all the women this impacts. That's what keeps me going because people have been so thoughtful in sharing their personal stories and perspectives. And it's really motivating to know that even something as small as a bra can make a really big difference in a person's day. Yeah. You know, what's going through my mind right now is just the just the nature of what happens to us as our function changes over time, right? Either temporarily or more permanently. And I know, you know, I've had rotator cuff clean outs and things like that and had to be in a sling and, you know, and feed and things like that just for a few weeks. And, you know, your world gets smaller and you really realize just, you know, how these things that we may take for granted, you know, are so, it's how valuable they are when we're limited. And, you know, when we are looking at this, I mean, this is, we all know about the age wave. We all know that people are living longer and we all know about sort of this baby boomer bump there. But I mean, what a lot of people don't know is that if we talk about temporary functional disability or permanent, between temporary and I think most of us, this is going to happen to most of us at some point in our lives, right? I mean, I think at least two-thirds yes. of the stat I read. Yeah. So most people don't seem to realize it's the number, like disability at least is the number one minority group. People can join at any time. And some people join and some people manage to uh, recover from whatever injury, illness, or condition they have. But a lot of people don't. And while a lot of people tend to assume, oh, maybe it'll happen to me when I'm 70, 80, 90, disability and limited mobility really start early. As you mentioned, it can be anything from a temporary broken bone or shoulder injuries, which are really common, particularly as you age, or it can be more permanent things like stroke, MS, arthritis, which so many people have, I believe, unless I don't think I'm outdated just yet, but in the U.S., arthritis is the number one condition and it affects over 60 million Americans. So it's a very common thing to have limited mobility. And a lot of people don't think about it that way. I'm obviously very in touch with all the conditions that we serve. And so I'm constantly thinking about all the ways I can become disabled. And even when I first started Spring Rose, one of our ethos when we're designing is making sure that whatever we do design doesn't feel like a compromise. It needs to be functional, but it also has to be stylish and aesthetically pleasing because, I mean, at least personally, I like nice things. I think most people like nice things and want to look good and feel good about themselves. And so we wouldn't ever want to present an option that is functional, but really ugly and feels like, it just feels like it's your only option. Right. So, I mean, we're not going to be able to show it on this on this podcast, but if we take a look at at a bra, for instance, what's the difference between a a bra that that, that people may know and, and a spring rose solution? So traditional bras tend to have back closures and they tend to be a hook and eye, which means you have these tiny metal hooks that hook into other pieces of metal, just other rings. And so you have to have a high level of dexterity to be able to hook those. You have to have grip strength. You often have to have shoulder mobility and be able to put your hands behind your back, whether to clasp it or unclasp it. And you have to have two hands. You can't really do them with one hand. Over the last 20 years, there's been some movement forward in terms of front closing bras. Uh, but even those tend to have still the hook and eyes, which you need, again, one at least two hands, dexterity and grip strength for. Or they tend to have uh, maybe a zipper or a magnet. But again, you still need some level of mobility or dexterity to be able to put them on. 
for us. Um, it took us three years, but we've been able to design a bra that can be put on about eight different ways. So it, it's very flexible to whatever your mobility needs are. And that includes putting it on one-handed with limited dexterity or with shoulder injuries. And take us through just the process of that. I mean, you know, you know, you're, yourself, you would not consider yourself to be functionally limited. You, you took this, uh, this company into a direction, you know, based on the inspiration of your grandmother. And then you designed this piece of technology, I would say, that has just multiple ways into it and working with it, right? So, I mean, how did you come up with, I mean, how did you come up with eight different, I mean, how, what was the process? <laughs> I needed to have eight different ways that this thing could, could be worn. Yeah, it just evolved over time. So my background was in design thinking and strategy, and I focused a lot on human-centered design, which for anybody who might not know, although I'm assuming in your podcast, your listeners are pretty aware, human-centered design is a qualitative research methodology where you assume that you're not the expert at the issue, that people experiencing the challenge are the experts, and you have to be very curious to try and figure out what those challenges are and then co-create solutions together. So I started off assuming I knew I needed a bra, but I didn't quite know what that was going to look like in any way, shape, or form. And so I made a point of, I believe at the time, this was 2020, I interviewed one-on-one uh, -on -one over 60 women across a range of ages and conditions and areas in the U.S. to try and understand what they really want in a bra and what their daily day lives look like, what the challenges were. And then I also worked with over 35 physical and occupational therapists to get feedback on our design and our prototypes. We ended up surveying over 500 women. Again, we just collected as much data as we could to build an image of what do people need? What are the pain points? And then, yeah, to design our product, actually, it's a fun story. I had an idea for what I thought the solution should be, but I'm not a fashion designer. And so I was like, maybe my idea is not the best idea. We'll see what else is out there. So with a friend of mine, we put together a design competition in three days, threw a little bit of money into the first place prize, made a marketing poster, gently lifted some terms and conditions from the internet, and sent the flyer to different engineering and design programs, undergrad programs around the country. We had over 70 people sign up. We had over 24 teams submit design ideas. And then we put together a panel of occupational therapists from Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, which is a really amazing rehab center in Chicago, who basically judged, they were a judging panel and they went through all the different designs and said, this is why it would work or why it wouldn't work, or here's modifications. We ended up with our winning design, which is the one we went forward with. And throughout the development of prototypes and testing and showing it to different PTs and OTs, we ended up adding new features and amending little things. And that's how we evolved the design to what it is today, because the original one was a one-handed bra, but we've now been able to make it so much more thanks to all of that feedback and testing and co-designing that we did with a lot of people. And ironically, unfortunately, the woman who designed the final design of our bra that we have right now, her mother about, I think, four to six months after the end of the competition had a stroke. And so she actually became one of our testers when we were going through our so the, the designer test you know the, the person that, that contributed a lot of the design for this product her she was in need just her yeah, mother was in need just, just months know. later yeah wow. and so it was a very full circle moment to the design i mean she's obviously one of the co-inventors on our patent so yeah yeah of course well i mean you know so i just want to kind of unpack this a little bit because i just think it's a really neat story so essentially you know it wasn't just sort of getting you know but getting 
very close and really understanding the problem. And that's one of the big, the first tenet of human-centered design is fall in love with the problem. Don't fall in love with what you think the solution should be, right? Hats off to Deval Patel, by the way, my earlier podcast guest for giving that. So you did that. You work with, you know, you had dozens and dozens of interviews with women with functional limitations. You had dozens of interviews with people with, uh, with OTPT, but you essentially... Knowing that, okay, we, we've understood the problem. That's what are the different approaches to the solution. You were able to engineer this, this sort of, this, this contest, this sort of hackathon, if you will. And the fact that 70 different people from engineering programs across the country, I mean, that, that tells you that the problem really spoke to people, right? That's a lot of entry. Yeah, I think people were very excited about it. And we didn't just have women. We had men, women, we had teens. It was yeah, it's something people care a lot about because it's an issue that affects whether even if it doesn't affect you, it affects somebody you know, whether that is a relative of yours or a loved one. Almost everybody who works on our business and has worked on our business in the last three years has some personal connection to our mission. And and that's because it is so common. There's over 50 different conditions that we serve, both temporary and permanent. It's something that is very popular, for lack of a better word, but it's not very commonly spoken about in society. Right. Right. So the interest was there. The ideas were there. I mean, it's a great way for you to, I mean, I think everyone get, gets things of value out there because they get the feedback from the OTPT on there or, or from the experts on the solutions. That You know, I was, I was wondering if you'd ever read, read a book called Tom Sawyer before. Uh, where <laughs> I think I did in like middle school or something. <laughs> you don't remember the whitewashing the fence thing? Oh, I remember the scene, but I don't remember what happens. I think Huckleberry Finn is there too. I think, I, I, I think, look, I'm a Canadian. I never read Tom Sawyer, but what I understand is that he makes the act of whitewashing the fence so fun that all his friends want to do it, and he gets to sit back and have all his friends basically whitewash the fence for him. That's, that's like not, when you get your friends. That's not totally what you did. No, that's not. I'm just being a jerk. But that's also when, like, you get your friends to help you assemble your furniture, or you get them to help you pack your orders, and you're like, "There's free pizza at the end. This is obviously worth your time." Absolutely, absolutely. But no, I think it's a terrific story. So. And in terms of the ongoing iterations of product, because, you know, you come out with your initial prototypes and then is there sort of like an active community that you work with? Is there kind of like a test and learn type experience here? I mean, what, do you, what are you discovering as you continue to kind of go through the, are, are you expanding the model range? Are you learning things about styles and colors? I mean, how, how has the product evolved since you first launched it? Yeah. So we actually just launched it about okay. a month ago. All right, guys, this yeah, is, uh, this is. September 2023, we're recording this. So Yes. So we launched this month, actually. So product has just shipped to people as of two weeks ago, but we did testing with over 50 women over the last year or two. So we sent them samples earlier on, got feedback on sizing and said we did one of our fit sessions. So for context, when you're doing sizing, what you want to do is a fit session. So you bring this garment in different sizes. You try it on women. You measure and see how it fits and whether you need to fix anything. Most I would say brands tend to do it on a small size, a medium size, and a large size, and then they'll mathematically kind of figure out and equate the rest of the sizing range. We brought in 16 women one time because we wanted to make sure that our product fit different shapes and sizes. And so we got a lot of feedback really early on before we launched because we wanted to be confident in our product. But even now, we're still learning. So for example, our colorways right now are a black and a terracotta. The reason we picked a terracotta, which is an unusual color, is because it acts almost like a skin tone or a neutral where it doesn't show up under white garments. Like light garments, you can't see it, which is 
something most consumers are not fully educated on, but we thought it was brilliant. Like it's a way of getting a skin tone and a neutral without actually getting five different colors because there's no one skin tone color. But now we're learning it's really difficult to educate consumers on why terracotta is a great choice. And people really want a beige. <laughs> so it's not necessarily something we are very excited to produce, but people want a beige and people want a beige, so we will make a beige. In terms of product functionality, it works really well for some people and for the people that it doesn't, then we ask them why and what could be better. It tends to be that the support isn't there. So sometimes, so we go up to an S cup in every band size that we have. But sometimes people might be a larger F or they're a G or it's just sizing is very inconsistent across the industry. So we're learning from that and learning how we can take our current product and what are ways we can add more support to expand to a G or an H cup or go larger and serve those clients. Yeah, You know, what's, what's interesting to me uh, is just the, just sort of where we come from the, you know, from your introduction to now, I mean, you know, the introduction did not include, you know, knows everything about manufacturing of garments. Or, <laughs> or I'm talking about this in the traditional sense. I mean, in one way, you know, yes, there's some know-how involved, but also you're kind of like starting from another direction acclimating yourself into this world through the need, through the human-centered design process, right? It's like at that certain stage, now I have to get smart about manufacturers, I have to get smart about fabrics, and I have to do all this and then the other thing. Was this a, and it was this, did you feel that, that was challenging or did, did you feel that it was a natural sort of part of the process? Oh, it's probably the most challenging part of everything we've done in the last three years. Finding a manufacturer was very challenging. Finding a technical designer who could make our product and understood that it wasn't just making something traditional, but it was needed to be highly functional. And so we had to test different fabrics, different finishes, different ways of working. And it took a lot of trial and error. We had, I think we're in our fourth manufacturer right now because the first three just weren't a fit. Either they didn't know how to produce our product, it was too technical, they didn't have the machinery, the knowledge. But those are things you find out over time. It's as somebody who didn't come from the manufacturing and the fashion world, it was something I had to get smart on. And it was a very, I learned a lot. You know, I think had I come from this world, I could have probably launched sooner or done things differently. But I feel very confident in my knowledge now. And that's been helpful. And I learned early on to bring on teammates that supplement that side that I don't have because their knowledge, their expertise has been invaluable to our success and the fact that we're here today. Yeah, you know, and one of the things that you, uh, we talked about when we uh, prepped for this show was just the story that you had about how you found your current manufacturer. Could you share that with our audience? Yeah, I'd be happy to. It's a bit of a story of serendipity. We were working with a manufacturing partner and they were not able to find a material that worked with our product the way we wanted it to. So we currently use around a medium compression fabric so something you would use more in a Spanx-like product because we want to provide support without wires. We're a wireless bra. And they weren't able to find that, but I knew it was available in country. So I said, I will go find it myself. I had a wedding coming up in the same country and decided to go a day early to find a fabric supplier. A week prior to that trip, I went to a co-working session with other Latino founders in Miami. It was the first of its kind, and I almost talked myself out of it. I'm so glad I didn't. And so I went, and during lunchtime, we're standing in a circle, eating empanadas. Everybody's introducing themselves and their businesses. Almost everybody was some version of a fintech company. And then they're like, what do you do? And I was like, I make bras, which is 
obviously very different. And everybody was very interested because I'm the weird one in the room. And as I was talking to them, I mentioned that I was going to, well, we manufacture in Colombia, so I was going to go to Colombia and mentioned that I was looking for a fabric supplier. One person in the group was from Colombia. He had a friend or has a friend who has been in textiles in Colombia for over 18 years, connected me to him. He then connected me to a fabric supplier uh, that they're friends of his. Talk to them. They're vertically integrated with a manufacturer. And so I ended up going and visiting both of them and I fell in love with it. They had both every technical capability that we needed, but they also really invest in fair labor and good working conditions. It was even like the taxi driver that I had that was mm-hmm. taking me around to the different factories even mentioned it without them pushing him. He was like, you know, these are really great people. You should really like, they've been so good to me and like paying me on time and all these things. So if even like the driver they hired was speaking well about them when he didn't need to, we were in the car by ourselves. It really showed me that these were good people to be in a relationship with. And particularly your manufacturing relationship is one of the most important ones for any business, but particularly a small business just starting out. So I got very lucky and I almost didn't make my plane, but that's a whole separate story. (laughs) (laughs) But that's terrific though, because, you know, I just, just in, you know, reflecting on everything that we've talked about in the show and, you know, people would say that a, and then this is a great, this is why I thought this is a great case study for human centered design. You know, there's, at least with the, the program that, that we have at, you know, at Church Homes, we sort of t- take it in, in, in five parts. One is kind of this visioning of the how might we, you know, so, and you've identified this problem around functional limitation with, and, and undergarments, but that how might, what is the vision of, of, of what the problem is or the opportunity? Then it's the customer interviewing, you know, very, you know, empathetic and not so much about what people want, but more about what people value or what their lived experience is like to really get to that. And then, then you went into all this ideation and the program, you know, the contest that you did was just an, an amazing way to kind of pull together people under the problem. You, you basically articulated the problem to the point that 70 different engineering students wanted to sort of try to address the issue. And then we talked about, and then the next, the fourth step is prototyping. And then you just test and learn it. And so you've got all of those elements in place. In addition, you sort of have this, you know, the, there's all of these struggles about just being an entrepreneur, period, right? I mean, there's the risk, there's the solution, there will people like this. But it just occurs to me, just with that example of the clothing manufacturer, I mean, you're not shy and people should not be shy about talking to other people about what they're doing. Right. I mean, you know, just networking can work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's. I always grew up being pretty bashful as a person, and it took starting this business to get to a place where I felt comfortable and I almost had to tell people about what I was doing all the time. And I it proved to be really helpful, not only because it helped me and how I articulate the business to people. Constant practice helps you sharpen your knives, but also because. People are almost, I'm going to say, almost everybody wants to help you, particularly if you're an entrepreneur, if you're taking a risk, if you're doing something innovative, people are excited by that because that's not what the general population is doing. And so they want to help you. They'll connect you. They'll send you resources. They'll be like, oh, I talked to this person once who might be a good contact. And a lot of, I've had a lot of moments like that where I've gotten a lot of success or help 
or support because I put myself out there and I talked about the business and situations. And I think that's very important for any entrepreneur to do or anybody who wants to even just get their idea out or start testing the waters. I remember when I was at Deloitte Consulting, I started doing this before I went to grad school where I'd had this idea for years. I had the idea for Springer's back in 2015. And so this was back in 2019. And I started talking. I was like, well, let me start floating it around and see what people think. And nobody told me it was a dumb idea. Nobody told me. I even told my like 65-year-old male clients. And they were like, yeah, that's wonderful. Like my sister is a PT who works on this. And I think she'd love it. And everybody just was so enthusiastic and yes, anding it that it was just, it showed me that this was the right move. Not to say that if people tell you it's a dumb idea that it is. Some people don't have creativity or vision, but I think generally it's good to hear what other people think. And sometimes good things come from that. That's just terrific. And, you know, having lived this experience now, this is your first startup, right? Yep. But aside from the lemonade stands. Aside from, it was a very successful lemonade stand. We I'm made sure over $100 when we were eight. So that was many monies. Well, that's, and, and the seeds of entrepreneurialism was, I can speak, say the word, we're born. Before we move on to those three questions we always ask every guest, is there anything, any other bits of advice that you would give to an entrepreneur that's thinking about starting a business or people that are really trying to work through the growth of their business, knowing what you know now about your experience or even just about human-centered design? I would say, similar vein to what we were just talking about, one, don't be afraid to tell people your idea. A lot of good things will come from that and most people will rally to support you. Two, even if you experience the problem yourself, so obviously I started this because of my grandmother and because of my loved ones, but even if I had a disability or some form of limited mobility, I would still encourage, I still would have talked to people because your story is just that. It's a single story and it's a single data point. And you really need the collective perspective to understand what is worthwhile, what actually you should delve into more and what people need. Um, I think there tends to be a big narrative around entrepreneurs being like, well, I had this problem and I, so I knew it was an issue. And it's like, no, you should talk to as many people as possible because even if people have the same problem, they might experience it differently. And particularly when I work with a community that has limited mobility, one person's pain is not the same as another, even if they have the same condition. Um, So understanding that is crucial. And then don't be afraid to take a risk. It's a hard one to say because everybody has a different risk tolerance. But unless you go into mountains and mountains of debt, which I would not advise, I think this is a long-winded one, but I think Shark Tank is a wonderful show. And I'm so glad it's permeated popular culture and that it is popular and doing so well. I think it often creates a false narrative of what it means to be an entrepreneur. It's this narrative of like, you should risk everything. You should put all your money. You should take a second mortgage on your home. And that is absolutely not correct because if you're not in a good place financially, emotionally, you are not going to make the best decisions for yourself and for the business. And it's going to be a very stressful time. So I would not take that approach. I would try and see, test the waters first. You don't need to dive in right off the deep end. I went to grad school for this purpose. I knew that I was not going to make an income for two years. I was also going to have access to resources and amazing mentors. And that was a choice I made because I didn't want to just quit my job and 
delve go right in. I didn't think that was financially for me the right decision. So whatever feels right to you, start small and start with the problem. That's a that's great advice and a great great place to end this part of the podcast. Nicole, thank you so much for being such a terrific guest. And where just before we get into our three questions, where can people find your company? Thank you so much, Mike. They can find it on springrose.co, not .com. I do wonder how many people have not made it. So spring like the season, rose like the flower, .co. One day we'll acquire the .com maybe. No. But they can find us springrose.co on our website and on every social channel. Wonderful. Well, that's great. So please check it out. I just launched, but with terrific momentum, including Nicole's company's acceptance into the AARPH Tech Collaborative Program, which is not a simple thing and so great to, to know that you're part of that group group. Okay, so we always ask our guests three questions about aging. And same questions to every single guest. Maybe we do the, maybe we do this with you. Let's do it. Okay. All right. So, all right. As part of the Abundant Aging Podcast, three questions. Okay. So, question number one: When you think about how you've aged, what do you think has changed about you or grown with you that you really like about yourself? My confidence and my comfort in my own skin. It's funny, even in the last three years. I can see a very significant change in myself as a person. I'm more willing to put myself out there, to share my thoughts, to speak to a crowd on a moment's notice. It's, I think every year I become much more confident and I wish I could go back to like high school or college as I am now, <laughs> but like my body then, you know, and just like live for a week and see how different life would have been. And I, I had a great time in high school and college, but I still think, be a very different um, experience to go with the maturity that I have now. And I just feel very comfortable in myself. And even if I have like weird quirks as well, I'm sure everybody does. We're all different yeah. people. I feel much more comfortable owning them and being true to myself and not having to bend myself over to kind of accommodate other people's desires, needs, or comforts. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I mean, that whole sort of like, I, I wish I I could go back then and what I know now, what I knew then and all that. I know a lot of people, you know, sort of think about that, but owning, I think owning your courts is another uh, great thing. They're, they're what make, makes you special, you know? Yeah. So question number two is what has surprised you the most about you as you've aged? Change is harder than it seems. I would say I always imagined a life for myself that looked a certain way. But if you don't build those habits early on and little by little, it's really hard to change later on. It's shockingly so. I'm like, oh, I will definitely be this way in five years. And then I'm not that way at all because I haven't taken the time over the years to start building those habits. And I think like stretching daily, something I tell myself I will do every day and then do like yes. once a week, maybe. <laughs> uh, so I just need to be better disciplined about it, but also I'm an eternal optimist. I need to start taking slow chunks instead of being like, today is the day forevermore. Every day I will do this. And instead I need to give myself grace and say, okay, once a week for a couple months and then twice a week for a couple months and then slowly build up the habit. But here's the thing, you know, I think you've got such a great view of your future that you're projecting yourself probably into age 100 or 105 or 110. I mean, that's, 
entirely possible now. So that's just what comes to my mind is, you know, the daily stretches are like just like a, like an investment in your future, right? Yeah. I mean, I will live to 100. My great-grandmother lived to 100. And I have grandparents into their 90s. So we're on our way unless the world ends between now and then. Yeah, well, let's hope it doesn't. <laughs> and then here's, here's, here's the last one. And, and it's, is, um, is there someone that you've met or somebody that's been in your life that has set a good example for you in aging? Someone that has inspired you to age abundantly? My grandmother, Rose. It's a bit of a I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that. But she, so she lived until she was 91 and she had a lot of chronic pain and other things, but she still lived the life she wanted. She took the trip she wanted. She hosted friends all the time. She always had cake in the freezer ready if you came over. She did her hobbies. She started a hobby when she was, well, it's not even a hobby. It was like her profession at that point, but she started sculpting clay when she and making sculptures when she was 50. So by the time she was 90, she'd been doing it for 40 years. She was an expert. She taught classes. She was always learning and constantly on the go and just lived her life in a way that was full of purpose and joy and um, community. And I think particularly the relationship piece is really important as we age. And I think that's just a really lovely example. It is a lovely example. Thank you very much for sharing that, Nicole. And thank you very much for being such a great guest on the show. This is Nicole Cuervo with Spring Rose. You can find her at springrose.co. And most of all, thanks to you, our listeners, for listening to this episode of The Art of Aging, which is a podcast that's part of the Abundant Aging podcast series from United Church Homes. And we want to hear from you. What do you think of about, about adaptive apparel? What sort of ways have you developed you know, offerings for your business? Uh, what do you think of human-centered design? What do you think of aging in general? We want to know. Come to AbundantAgingPodcast.com and give us your thoughts. You can also see all of our past shows. We hope you enjoy those. You can also find us on YouTube at uh, United Church Homes. And also a reminder, please visit our Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging on the web. That's unitedchurchhomes.org slash Parker hyphen center. And join the conversation that we're hosting around ending ageism and promoting positive stories in aging. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time.